Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about uh, virtual and uh, and digital production. Our second hour is usually something that, you know, we want to spend a little bit more time on. Today, we've got Glenn Sanders here. Glenn Sanders is the founder of Zaxcom. So Glenn's, got, Glenn's going to give us a little bit of his, of the history, how Zaxcom got built, what they do, uh, some of their newer products. We're really excited to have them. So if you've got questions for Zaxcom, go ahead and throw those into, uh, and for Glenn, uh, go ahead and throw those into the uh, second hour. Uh, make sure to tag those in Makana. And if you've got questions for the first hour, the digital, our digital production, general questions, questions about all things digital, uh, let us know and throw those into the questions. We have got a lot of room for those today. Um, and make sure to vote on the questions. Uh, you're the producers. So if you're watching here, uh, you're deciding not only what we talk about, but when we talk about it. So go ahead and vote questions up and down. And uh, let's go ahead and jump into those questions. Bill, what do we have? Our first one this morning comes from David Brady in New York City. And David says, are there any good tutorials or course courses for learning Apple Motion? Uh, go ahead, Marty. Well, Ripple Training has a whole series of videos, uh, training videos for um, for motion. And if they're anything near like uh, the videos they produced for DaVinci Resolve, they should be pretty great. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, I look for the name Mark Spencer, and he does them for Ripple Training. Mark is one of the leading trainers in all things Apple Motion. He knows the program inside and out, and he is engaging and really fun to watch. So I would go in that direction. Uh, Motion is an interesting product. You know, it's it's only $49, and you think, oh, this should be a pretty simple program. It is one of the most deep and complex programs that you will run into, predominantly because in the back end of the program, it has so many complex motion graphics type controls. Literally, there's thousands of settings behind the scenes in motion. So uh, Apple's done a really good job, I think, of making it easy to kind of understand the basics and get into it pretty simple. If you get some training from somebody like Mark Spencer, you'll, you'll dive in and get some really useful stuff done really quickly. But I'm 10 years into being a motion owner, and I have probably touched 25% of the program. It's that deep. Yeah, I, it was, it's funny. I when I was building time, you know, time countdown clocks, I was talking to Mark about how, how I do them. And by the way, ripple training is what you want to get, you know, for motion uh, training. And, and, uh, but, but I, I told Mark, oh, I'm doing this thing. I do this countdown and then I reverse the time and I do all this stuff. And he goes, have you thought about keyframing the, the, the time code? And I was like, you can keyframe the time code? <laughs> it was like, saved me like years, years of time, like over the number of countdown clocks I built. Like, and it just, it was like one little question. Have you thought about doing it this way? And so between uh, Mark Spencer and Alex Golner, those are the, my two, you know, motion go-to experts. Um, but unfortunately, Alex doesn't do as much training as Mark. <laughs> so, so anyway, so um, I would highly recommend Mark Spencer's uh, series on motion. Next question. Uh, Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida is up next. What are some effective ways to draw audience to your virtual conference aside from the regular show? Thanks. Go ahead, Jeffrey. I'm going to use the Carnegie Hall uh, answer. Promotion, promotion, promotion. Um, it's very important to uh, to get the name out and to get everything out. Don't overdo it. Don't spam people. I have conferences even from 10 years ago that over spam my email. And so I I just I just throw them into spam and, and I don't even think about them every year. Uh, you want to have you want to be able to use their utilize their social channels. So having uh, somebody build up a card with their that person's face and their and their session and say, can you po post this on your channels so they're aware that you're going to be talking at this event is always a great way to do that. 
uh, the if they have a very powerful, you know, work with people to on the titles. This is the one problem I always have with these conferences is, is they come people come up with titles that are just weak and they could be so much better. It, and I don't I don't mean make a title that sounds like and what happens next will make you fall apart or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, but actually just to create a title that gets a lot of engagement and then promote it that way. Uh, don't jam all the events in one tight window. If if it's if it's a one day conference and you got way too much com- content, people will just might get overwhelmed and they'll just not come anyway. And then finally, I know uh, many people that use giveaways to bring people in, not only to bring people in, but uh, measure how they're staying in. Like for instance, halfway through a session, somebody will say a number or something like that, and then you uh, you have to. Uh, fill out a form where the, you put in that number, and then uh, that way they get a, a good idea of uh, of content. So those types of things will help you uh, bring people in and keep people in on your virtual conference. Uh, go ahead, Bill. Draw audience to a conference. You're in the realm of marketing. So some of the basic marketing ideas really come into uh, fruition here. The biggest part of this is trying to figure out who's your likely attendee and finding a way to reach them. And very quickly, I'll tell you the story of once upon a time, I had uh, an account that was the local Cadillac dealer where I lived. And they gave me a bit of information that 50 to 60% of the people buying Cadillacs migrated from two versions of Buicks and one other car. And so I went to the DMV and found out that I could access their mailing lists and just attack those people. And that made all the difference in the success of the promotion because I found the people who are most likely to accept the offer to come rather than broadcasting, I was narrow casting. And so that I think is your task, figure out who the people are, what they're interested in, and then figure out whether there's web advertising or something else you can do, some sort of marketing, whether it's mail or, or uh, building a little network. You try to get as close to that type of person as possible and your response rate will go way up in terms of success. Yeah, I will say that the most effective way to do this is to slowly build up a a connection with uh, the the attendees. So you you said aside from regular show, but doing something that's fairly regular over a long period of time or doing multiple activations over a long period of time is a really great way to do something. And it's the least expensive way (laughs) to do a lot of these things. So, you know, definitely think about how you can incorporate that into your workflow when you decide that it's more of a triage kind of thing, like we need to promote someone right now, Google AdWords work really well. <laughs> like, so they're, they're super effective, as, as is Facebook. Um, so, you know, we can talk a lot about whether they should be effective or whether it's right to be effective, but wow. Uh, like when you really understand how Google AdWords work and Facebook uh, ads work, it's like looking into the sun. Like, you know, they, if you get it, if you get the description right and you have something solid on your end to receive that description, you're absolutely going to get output, you know, like, so, so it's, you know, there, it's just a matter of, of, of honing those things. You do need to do a little study. It's not worth doing Google AdWords or Facebook ads. If you haven't taken some of the courses or watched some of the bits and pieces of how to frame those and how to put those together. But if you have some money and you're just trying to make it happen now, you can definitely get it out to a lot of people. Now that landing page is going to be super important that it comes back to. So whatever they're going to, they have to really clearly understand what they're going to get out of it. And it's going to have to come, you know, be, aimed at your target audience and make sure that they're uh, given an opportunity to do that. Uh, depending on how much you're charging, 
a pretty common thing to do is have people pay a little bit or none at all for an introductory thing that's going to set up for the virtual conference. So you get them into something that is going to give them value, but is going to set them up to to join a, a bigger a, a bigger piece. And the only other thing I would say is um, don't stack. There's no reason to do tracks in a virtual conference. Just make the conference longer. <laughs> There's no reason to create FOMO. Uh, next question. Samuel Nordvik in Norway comes up with, uh, do you have any experience with Waves Max with two X's volume, considering it to use uh, in a vMix as well as as a brick wall limiter? Go ahead, Jason. So um, I've actually played with the demo and my immediate and, and first thought was, if I'm game staging correctly, I don't need this. Um, the only thing that I've used that's anywhere near it are um, the new BBE plugins, uh, the L82 loudness maximizer is a is a really nice control, and um, it is of course is a, a modeling off of a off of a rack mount from several years prior. Next question comes from Guy Cochran in Seattle, Washington. When will we see 8K 120 frame per second live streaming? Go ahead, John. I'm the proxy for Guy. He threw the ball to me in Discord, <laughs> so he, he posted Red Connect, which is a 8K workflow. Um, using 2110 um, SEMPTI, but it, it looks like it runs on a local LAN across 10 gig fiber into their CCU and then out to 2110. That's what he wanted everybody to know. Yeah, the um, you'll see some more, um, a lot more about it. This at NAB, we'll cover it. Um, uh, we've got some friends that have been working on some of the technology around that. And so um, I didn't know that Red was going to talk about it before uh, before NAB. <laughs> so, so anyway, so the, uh, um, they, they might have jumped, jumped the gun a little bit. But yeah, we'll talk about it at, um, with a couple of folks. We may, you know, in some of our coverage, especially towards the evening, we may bring some stuff in where we where we capture some stuff that we can show about that. Um, I think that you're going to see, you know, that that is transport, but how do you stream it? And I think that there is some, some really interesting tech that's going to come out at NAB that's going to talk about it. Now, when is it going to become normal? That's still a little ways out. But I think that we're going to start seeing a lot more 8K120 as we go into uh, 2024. And so I, I, I think you're going to see, you're going to see it start to uh, bubble a little bit. But one of the things that is rumored is that all the iPhones um, will be a, a 120 capable, maybe not 8K, but 120 capable, like all the way down to the, to the base models uh, in the next version. Um, all the TVs are 120 already, you know, your, most of your other tablets are going to 120. So there's a lot of things that can produce, that can play back 120. And it's just a matter of turning the content pipe on. And the problem really is, is that it's really expensive. You know, like you're talking about needing a, a hundred meg connection or 200 meg connection minimum. And that's pretty compressed, you know, like that's, you know, it's at the same level of compression to do the math, um, you, you know, you're talking, you know, as solid, you know, as 10, as a 1080p stream, you know, you're you're really talking about about 100 megs a second. So it's 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 a thing. Now, next question. Samuel Nordvik's back from Norway with what is the reason that the master frame rate still needs to be set to drop frame 29.97 frames instead of 30 for live streaming? Is this something that is baked into the audio analog to digital converters or is it the audio encoding encoding format? It's still there's just a lot of things that are standing. at this point. Audio doesn't need it. Video doesn't need it. They could all go to whole frames. Um, you know, film a lot of times is now being shot in 24. Uh, things can be done in 30. But the problem is, is that there are a lot of systems out there. And some of the systems are, are can handle 30 and some can only handle 29.97. And so as a safety, we do everything at 29.97 if we're going to do it in that format because 
we just don't want to deal with it later, you know, to have to have to manage that. But the reality is, is most of the most of the modern tools are capable of 30, but you'll find things that just won't even turn on, won't show anything at 30 frames a second. And so you don't want to get yourself into that position. Um, so most of us are still using 2997 um, as we go out. It is, you are correct though, for streaming, most of the streaming platforms are all at uh, 30. So no matter what you give them, if you give them 24, it goes out as 30. If you go to 2997, 30. You know, so it, some of them do do 60, uh, 25, 30. <laughs> so, so they're, they're, uh, they're the YouTube, Facebook, and a, a lot of other ones are standardized on the 30 frame per second. No matter what you do, their transcoders are going to convert it to, uh, to one format. Next question. Andy Kokendorf for Vieira, Florida. Up next, what do you do with the gear you test but does not make it into production? School donations or? Go ahead, Marty. Well, yeah, that's certainly one way to uh, make good use of equipment that you no longer want. Um, there are also Facebook groups dedicated to gear swaps and gear sales, and houses of worship are always looking for uh, good gear that can be used, um, you know, and with it uh, less, uh, somewhat less, uh, you know, uh, requirements for reliability. Go ahead, Jeffrey. So as uh when I get products in to test, some of them I actually end up keeping because you never know when I need to go back to them for some reason, uh, even though I don't put them into my regular production there. Uh, I Yeah, I will give them to a Goodwill or, or anything like that if uh, if they are completely out of, uh, out of use for me. Uh, some people, what they'll do is they'll set up a web page and then they'll sell their stuff. I personally don't like to sell uh, products that I get. Uh, or buy because you know they're they're used and I just you know if if they fail then I I feel bad on that, uh, but uh, yeah the you, and and of course as Marty said there's there's many places that you can go to give away and to sell items and I highly suggest not to sell the item for the actual price that's the one thing that really frustrates me on yep. these marketplaces. Go Jason. Um, I'm with Jeffrey. I think it's unethical to sell something that you didn't pay for. Um, I'm largely the same. I tend to give it to um, either clients or um, more recently people on office hours that either will enjoy it the most or that need it the most. And uh, I'm in the process of moving. So um, along those lines, Alex, I think you might just have a care package coming <laughs> back from uh, NAP. <laughs> Very good. Go ahead, Bill. Uh, and don't forget, in your local area, you may have something like in, in the two places I've lived recently, the Boy and Girl Scouts uh, generally have electronics recycling days that they do as a kind of a service organization. And they're great because the kids can probably grab what they need. And that's another generation. The other thing is don't just throw it away. Uh, most states now do electronic recycling. There's a lot of stuff in these electronic things that are not particularly good to toss in a landfill. So make sure that you have a back stage recycling process. I know here in California, they have regular recycling things and they try to treat the post-use waste stream responsibly. Yeah, I I, uh, I would love to say that I, I have I just have a lot of stuff laying around. <laughs> I don't usually give it away. I try to, you know, it's funny when when I was closing up my warehouse, uh, I tried to, I went to a couple of schools and they were like, oh no, we can't 
take donations or we don't want the donations or they didn't want. And that was like, I have 10,000 square feet of gear and about half of it could go somewhere. And they just didn't want it. I did have one high school say, oh yeah, yeah, we'll come in. And they came in and burrowed in and just took boxes and boxes and boxes of, of cameras and little, little cameras, you know, that, that I, that I definitely didn't need. And so, um, yeah, so we try to, but I, I, I found that it was much more difficult to give it to the schools than I thought it would be, you know, to, to make that actually happen. There was a lot more, um, red tape than, than I expected. Um, I try to test things as fast as I can so I can take them back to Amazon if I don't. And, and I will admit that I've become, uh, we've talked about this in the past, I've become very like, because Amazon's return policy is so easy, I have to admit that it, I, at first I thought there's no way they can make money at this. And then I realized they could because, because I just, I'm very specific about buying it from, from them because I know that I can just take it to Whole Foods and go shopping and drop off my stuff. It's, a, it's pretty, uh, pretty lethal. Um, next question. Uh, Khalid Abjamani, it looks like in Hassa, Saudi Arabia, and I'm probably getting the name terribly messed up, and I apologize for that. Hey, guys, I want to share this amazing Kickstarter keyboard, which, if released, could be a game changer, and he's got the link there. Good morning. Uh, so this was a hot topic in our pre-show discussion, and it is a very interesting product. It's basically a clear keyboard that is overlaid onto a uh, video screen uh, that can be programmed in different ways and segmented and you can have different things under different keys if you want to there was an area at the top that uh, was separated with different controls and it also has some uh, rotary dials and some other controls around the perimeter that sound really really useful and handy because they can be they can be programmed to do different functions um this this could be a very interesting product. Go, Jeffrey. So it's a Sydney-based company. It's uh, what it is. It's look, think of it like a tablet without the touch screen. Uh, that's you're attaching to the computer. Nineteen twenty by ten eighty uh, sixty hertz IPS display. Three uh, display three hundred uh, nits at one hundred fifty seven ppi. It's got a quad core ARM processor inside there and eight gigabytes inside. So you you can't use it as a display, but you can actually load in videos and, and other objects into the, uh, the the device and it will then display on the bottom. Uh, the It's also not a touch screen. It's using what's called maglev switches, which are basically these little magnets that are holding the keys up. And when you press them down, what it sends out electrical signals. It never touches the screen from what they're saying on the page. It's USB 2.0, uh, and it takes about three to four watts of power, but there's two side USB ports if you want to put in an, uh, a num num numeric pad. Yeah, okay, numeric pad. Uh, but if you take more power than what the USB is offering, they do have a side powered. You can double USB it or you can plug it into the wall. Uh, tactile and linear switches, and they're expecting a December release with their Kickstarter. I, I, I'm trying to resist the urge to buy it. <laughs> I'm trying to resist it. I don't know if I'll make it. It looks really cool, and it looks like you could do a lot of interesting things. I, I will say that I wish that they, on their demos, they should show a couple of without all they want to show off the fact that it's just a video screen there so they've got animations going across behind the keys which makes my skin crawl like looking at it just is just like very upsetting <laughs> like i was like i could never do that on my keyboard but having the the interesting thing there is that you know i think that there's a lot of opportunity for it to be responsive so it can be changing those keys and it's a full keyboard it's not just a you know a smaller uh you know collection of keys it's a full keyboard 
that can be very responsive to what's happening at that moment. I think it's super exciting. I'm really glad that Khalid uh, pointed it out to us, uh, and uh, and we're uh, we're gonna I'm gonna try to try to resist it. I think Khalid has become a very expensive friend. All right, next question. Next question comes from David Brady in New York City. Expecting delivery of the Ozbot Mini 4K, what are the differentiators between it and the Insta360 Link? Go ahead, Jeffrey. Well, the biggest one is it's USB 3.0, whereas InstaLink is USB 2.0. And same thing with the uh, previous OBSBOT is it's USB 2.0. Uh, they also have, and I can never do the right, it's 1 over 1.5. I don't know how you actually say that, uh, but uh, that's, the, uh, that's, the, that's the sensor size inside. And then uh, the other thing is they're uh, doing different types of gestures. The one thing I really didn't care too much about with OBSBOTs was if you raised your hand that's what gave uh, that's what connected you to it which if anybody was very handsy that would turn on and off the uh, that functionality the new types of gestures allow it for a little bit more robust type uh, settings from there and I think that's going to be a pretty good game changer if we've got the right sensor and it works really well I mean from for a lot of us that are a little bit more controlling, the the gestures in both the Insta360 link and the OBSBOT mean almost nothing to us because they never really frame the way we want them to. And I don't really want them mm-hmm. trying to figure that out. But I think for some people it could be useful. The But but there's a bunch of us that don't want the, any of those things. So when we look at what's differentiated in is a slightly larger, um, uh, you have a, a slightly larger chip um, that that's there. Uh, that, so we'll see how the sensor the sensor looks. Um, it's a wider angle, so I don't think that the slightly larger buys us a lot because you have to zoom in more than you do with the Insta360 Link. The big thing that we're really interested in with the OBSBOT and what might make a difference for us is specifically the um, the the OSC you know c- controls. So being able to talk talk directly to the camera and have full potentially full control with OSC is what we're really interested in. I don't think that it we were kind of ignoring the OBSBOT until we realized that OSC was there. And so now we're looking at it very carefully um, and, 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 and questioning our Insta360 uh, links. <laughs> so, so hopefully either Insta360 needs to get OSC or, you know, or, we're, or a lot of us may start looking at the OpsBot pretty seriously. Next question. Next one comes from Jeffrey Powers here on the panel. Madison, Wisconsin, what's the best way to do a kiss cam or something similar at an event? Good morning. So if you're looking for something small, I'd recommend looking at Marshall Electronics, who have these miniature cameras. In fact, I'm using one right now um, that can have interchangeable lenses so you can change your focal length and your zoom uh, and focus. Uh, And some they have interchangeable lenses and you can get them with USB output, HDMI output, SDI output and NDI output. So they are very interesting. Yeah, go ahead and Bill. Having done some nightclub work in my time where we did a lot of promotional kinds of things, to me, the the key here is to be make sure you're in an environment where everybody is focused on the output of that camera. The audience in general is watching something that's kind of built into where you normally see it, which is baseball games and things like that, where they have the huge sports billboard. Uh, people understand that there's live cameras and when they see themselves or if people around them in the crowd see them and say, hey, you're on the kiss cam, it really engenders that back and forth live thing that everybody finds so charming and fun. If you don't have that, it's going to be really hard to get people's attention so that the people act naturally. So just make sure that you direct them to it or you have some process for making sure the live shot of the audience 
is has awareness in the overall crowd. That's when they work best. The secret to kiss cams is ringers. <laughs> Just so you know, like it, it is. So uh, they prime the pump in most in most stadiums and arenas. They have uh, one, two, up to four or five people that are um, that are in the crowd that are cued to do it when that ha- they they know that they're supposed to do it when they see the kiss cam and that give and that, that's why they can get to them really fast is because they already have them framed up and um, and so they that kind of helps kind of loosen the whole system. It's not there are a lot of people after that. There's a lot of people that are doing it themselves, but it's really hard to break the ice. And so what they've learned is to put people in the, and you'll see the same thing with like someone being dancing really funny or doing something really goofy. And you think that that's just some random person. It's not. <laughs> so, so anyway, just, I, I hate to, I hate to give you the red pill there, but, but it's a, uh, it's not a, most of those things are, 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 um, kind of, uh, organized. Uh, we've worked on a couple of those projects. And so, so anyway, so the, um, they're, they're organized and it makes it a lot better. It's really hard to do if you don't put ringers in, uh, it's just hard to find people. It's hard to, you have a very small amount of time to, to get people going. Um, and so having a couple to start to kick it off with makes a big difference. Uh, just a quick reminder also is that, uh, we have uh, plenty of room for questions. So if you've got questions, go ahead and throw them in, uh, and make sure to vote on those questions and let us know when you want to talk about them, stack them up in the order that you think is important and uh, get the questions in for both our first hour, which we're still working on for another half hour or for Zach's com in the second hour. All right, next question. Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida says in a live concert, when there's an effect such as an extreme reverb on a specific word, how exactly is that done? Any automation or is someone just sweating bullets to nail the timing manually? How is that documented from show to show? Good morning. Well, I think that would depend on the artist and the budget for the for the show, you know, um, in a in a club or a smaller venue or you know, for a, somebody who uh, is not really on a national tour. Um, the audio engineer would know all of those cues because they're they're doing it and they would have the board set up and they would bring up the reverb for that. But in a larger show, a touring touring act. Uh, some of those things have quite extensive automations and scripting, all according to time code, and a uh, and an edit list that uh, is is down to the to the microsecond because it has to be timed to the music. So there would be a click track that the drummer would be going to, and uh, there would be cues for starting the the next song. Uh, they can be highly scripted and automated. Sure. Good, Bill. I did it once upon a time in my early days in radio, and it was an interesting thing because I realized that to just apply reverb to one word and then let the reverb ring out in silence and then go to the next word, that's pretty simple, all right? You just click in the reverb, say the word, get the reverb tail to finish. When you're trying to do it at a higher level so that the word is still reverbing, reverberant, while you add in the original audio and continue on your read is a bit more complex. I had to take some serious time in post to make that hang out. Do the word, patch it into a second track over the thing so that I could come back in as the announcer clear while the reverb was still hanging over the tail. It can be a little goofy sometimes. Go ahead, Jeff. 
Yeah, and, and what made me think of this, I was just watching uh, a video and, and, you know, that hit. And I, and then, of course, immediately I'm thinking, man, was, you know, was someone sitting there just, you know, with their job, depending on hitting the button at the right second and then taking that off. I'm curious, Marty, with the automation, I mean, in a live show, I mean, I'm sure it's timed pretty well, but never exact. I mean, you know, they may be talking to the audience and all that stuff. I mean, the timing can't be that exact, can it? The, the the time code is is per song so they can stop and start between them so they can riff between the songs but once the for a, and, and it depends on the act some acts are not doing that at all like so some acts are out there playing it but when you start to hear when you see a lot of intricate uh, sound effects and intricate lighting effects and smoke effects and so on and so forth um, that are that are happening in fast succession it usually means that it's on as Marty said on time code and on a click track um, the you know for a lot of those especially pop singers, uh, their automation is somewhere between 10 and 80%. <laughs> so, so, you know, it, it, of, of what you're hearing is accompanying. And it's not just the click track. It can be a lot of the music, some of the voices, some of the, you know, and, and there's, it doesn't mean that people on stage aren't doing some of it live. Um, but you have to remember also, when you look at the amount of acrobatics that are going on, a lot of times you wouldn't be able to sing the way that people expect you to sing and do the things that they're they're doing there at the same time. And so it is pretty complicated. And so that even their voices get replaced at, at for certain songs or at certain times. The key is, is that they know when those things are, are, are going to be, when they have an open space. And that's usually between the songs and sometimes during the songs, there's kind of an, an opened area for them to, you know, do things because that continues to create that um, the, the, the facade, you know, that, that's there, you know, for, for those larger live shows. Um, some of it can be cued, but a lot, a lot of it's animated, you know, and they, and they rehearse these things. They build up these stages in a rehearsal stage and they rehearse everything down and they program it all down and they get it all working. And they've, and they, then once they've figured it out, then the artist comes and rehearses with them to, to make sure that they understand it before they go on tour. Cause these are, you know, hundred million dollar projects. And so they, they, um, you know, for a, for a large tour, but that, but yeah, a lot of it is, is still animated or automated. You it, know, for, and, and and frankly, it was just on the heels of, of the, you know, Descript show got me thinking, I, I wonder if it's happening already or if folks are looking at using, you know, real-time uh, speech recognition so that you could, you know, it it could be, analyze the song and wait for that, you know, that key word to then trigger the, you know, the next word is where the effect takes Even place. with AI, that would be so hard for it to do, you know, it'd be, it'd be a, a chain reaction of, of creating that for now. But I, I think that, you know, they could definitely do it at some point, but right now it's, they've got it down to, they've got it honed to a pretty solid pipeline, you know, that, that is, uh, um, that, that makes all of those work. We work with some of the folks that do that kind of work and it, it's, the science, <laughs> and, yeah. they, and yeah, they figured it out. They're using tools like uh, um, Universe and Isadora to do show scripting and, and automation. And, and there can even be um, either a, a, a director who is announcing, you know, in their in-ear monitors, counting down to the next cue, or it could be a video screen with a countdown timer or flashing lights or something to, and, to cue and those them are to start at the next point. And those are more of the, th you know, for the theater ones that, you know, in the, some of the smaller, the bigger acts have a whole different set of tools, um, you know, to do that. But the, the, um, uh, it's an interesting, it's, it's a really interesting puzzle. At some point we'd like to bring some, some folks on to talk about it a little bit. I don't, a lot of times they don't want to talk about it. So, <laughs> so I'm not sure when we'll, you know, like, you know, how, you know, you, sometimes you don't want to see how, how that, that sausage is made, uh, you know, you just want to enjoy it. 
it's getting more and more complicated because now they're adding AR experiences to it. So during the song, there's things that happen. Um, the wristband, the wristbands um, are uh, those little wristbands that you get on the way into your Taylor Swift show. I, mean, I know that Jeff, you went to the Taylor. You know, you probably went to a lot of Taylor Swift shows in in, in Florida. Just kidding. <laughs> so you're not you're not a, not a Taylor Swift fan. <laughs> anyway, the Taylor Swift. Fan, I thought ta- you must be referring to Jeffrey by mistake. <laughs> it's not, not anyway. Not this I am so a Swifty. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So, but you know those kind her 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 concerts have these little wristbands that you get. They're they're eight dollars each. In case you're wondering how much those things cost, and uh, and they light up and they do designs and they know where you are, you know, seated and there's all kinds of things. But those things, you know, when you start adding those kind of participatory. Uh, events into it, it really has to be tightly timed um, to make all of that stuff work and, and to, to have it go through. All right, let's go to the next question. Next question comes from Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach. Curious to hear opinions. Do you like watching videos of concert performances shot and uploaded by the audience attendees? Do you find the audio even listenable? Good, Jeff. Okay, so the two are related because it really was me trying to find a live, but an official video of a live performance. Um, and it was, it was so difficult because this was YouTube and, and what kept showing up in the search results were all these horrible, um, attendee videos and, you know, and and some are just downright horrible video, you know, they're a mile away. Some, you know, it's decent video. Okay. It's clearly an audience, but I mean, you know, they're holding it and annoying everyone else. So we have a good shot on the video. I mean, I've just yet to find one where the audio is is listenable. I mean, sometimes the official video, whatever they're doing wrong, doesn't have great audio, let alone hearing it from someone, you know, who's a hundred yards back. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Uh, For me, it depends on the situation. If we're talking like a uh, stadium or we're talking like a smaller room, where, uh, where it actually sounds pretty decent uh, with a, just a regular microphone, then uh, I might listen to it. Uh, I am impressed in how the audio on the phone, the iPhone 13, iPhone 14 has come, especially if you do it in cinematic mode, because uh, it, uh, there's something about it that really tries to do its best on audio. But if you move around, that becomes the problem because you start zooming in on the guitarist and then you lose some of the sound from the other sides. But if you keep it in a stable area, you can get all of that sound right there. And yeah, the, the raising of the hand is, is, is annoying. But uh, last week I was doing some video of a local band and I could zoom in on somebody raising their hand showing a little bit better of a shot than what I could actually get from the PTZ camera. So there's a little bit of give and take on that part. Good, Bill. I'm right there with Jeffrey. I think I've seen it done satisfactorily, not professionally, but to where, oh, yeah, I enjoyed this moment in the concert. And I've also seen what he's describing as, oh, my gosh, please just stop waving around. And I'm just getting to an interesting point. And you decide to talk to your neighbor and your your shot goes to heck. And those are intensely frustrating. So it's a catch as catch can. Go ahead, uh, Marty. You know, those of a certain age might remember the era of bootleg recordings on on tape and vinyl of bands like the Grateful Dead and Fish and and others. And, you know, they would sound pretty awful because they were, you know, a microphone in the audience. And when you have of that, you're you're not just listening. Well, the microphone is not just hearing the loudspeakers, it's hearing the reverberation in the room and the audience noise and all of that and that that's still even with your phones that have more intelligent audio you still get a lot of that but um it's a really good good inter- a point because i think 
anybody, any band who is producing a video of a show could get really um, creative by incorporating some of those user videos into their video, replacing the audio with the real audio, because each of those audience members have a unique view of the stage. And some of them are actually really good. You know, if they have their cam, their set, cam, uh, phone camera set up properly, you can get some pretty good shots. Yeah, I think that I think the, the, the ones of Foo Fighters is probably the best ones that I've seen out there. And that has to do with the fact that what ends up being viral are their kind of between songs and when they bring people up on stage. So people like shooting when they bring, bring people up on stage, I think is, is, is pretty cool. Um, I think that if you're shooting footage that is not when they're doing something specifically different, it's just their concert, it's just kind of annoying. You know, <laughs> so I'm a big fan of, of bands. It, they don't take your phones away, but they just shame you for doing it. Like, you know, and I think that shaming from the stage is a pretty useful tool of just like, hey guys, let's not do that. Like, you know, and, and that's all the, uh, what you'd be surprised at how quickly people will put their phones away because what you're doing is you give, you're basically giving the audience the permission to police itself. So there's a lot of people that are annoyed that you're p picking your phone up and doing this. And if the band starts saying that's not cool, what happens is everyone around you tells you it's not cool. You know, and and um, so you're giving them promotion, just to just, you just have everybody just put your phones down and let's just enjoy the show. Um, and so um, I've seen a couple of bands do that really effectively. And then, then people are just in the show because the re reality is 99. There's a handful of times when it's worth it, but 99% of the footage shot at a concert will never be seen again because it's absolutely unusable and horrible and there's just no reason to shoot it. And so, especially with iPads, like at Coachella, you're like, who is carrying an iPad around at Coachella? You're like, you know, and, and you see, you'll see like six of them up there and you're just, and I'm usually working something there, right? In the time, in times I've been there, I've been working Coachella. So you're like, you're like I'm backstage or off to some angle or in the press pit. And you're like, why are they doing that? <laughs> like, I wonder like, if what, they're what? using something like Switcher Studio where you've got a bunch no, of iPads just, up there as no, cameras and then no, somebody switches to an iPad. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's the worst. It's just the worst. But I, the, I you, equate that to, uh, to folks that like to post videos of the fireworks they're watching on July 4th. Like they're the only person who is currently being exposed to fireworks. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a painful, painful thing to to watch. So, um, but if you, uh, um, uh, I'm trying to think of uh, uh, the, uh, the, the two to watch, by the way, if you wanna see some really fun um, concert videos is this Kiss Guy with Foo Fighters and Nandy, I think it's Nandy Bush, Bushell. Um, playing with with Foo Fighters, um, those are probably two concert videos that are worth watching. I don't know very many other ones. Uh, next question. Yeah, Marty, don't forget the Deadhead people who take it really seriously have two Nagras and a Deca tree out there in the middle of the audience. Anyway, uh, Guy Carker in Seattle, is there any way to cut a show live via voice? Uh, I don't know of any ways. I'm, I'm, I think that you know, guy threw a cock run and then he's not here. He, he missed the ball. So I, you know, I'm sure that there's something. I'm, I'm assuming something has been released that will let you cut via voice, and and I don't know what it is. So, um, so anyway, the um, but I think uh, this is coming. If you think about what a technical director, um, you know, can do for a simple show. There's no reason why you couldn't have a director just sit there and just start calling out the show. Ready camera two, go camera two. Ready camera three, go camera three. An AI could totally start to figure that out. Now, the hard part is, is that there's a lot of other things a TD does. <laughs> so, so there's, you know, when you, the reason you hire a, a TD is not so they can push buttons. It's because they're, they're thinking ahead of you. They're sometimes cutting when you're not paying attention. They're doing a whole bunch of other things there that, that are there. So the great TDs are doing a lot more to it. Could you do a simple corporate show 
Absolutely. Could you do Thursday night football with that? No. <laughs> so, so, uh, so I think that that's the, the, the thing that you can, um, you know, you just want to look at, there's probably ways to cut a show with voice where you could direct it. And that'll be great for a lot of people. We're, we're really, AI is really going to move us to a place where people are doing what they want to do without having to necessarily know how to do it with their fingers. They're going to be able to create things, whether it's graphics or, or other things, as well as being able to cut things, being able to reorder things, so on and so forth. Um, uh, you know, just with their ideas. I think that's going to be pretty exciting, but it's not going to replace at the high level, the top 10%, top 5%. It's not going to replace anybody. Um, next question. Art Aldrich in New York up with, I have a collection of old laptops, phones, and tablets looking for a secure disposal organization. Any recommendations? Go ahead, Jeffrey. Uh, well, secure, I, I don't trust anybody but myself to be the secure uh, disposal. So I will drill out hard drives. I will uh, DOD erase uh, drives or anything like that. You can uh, you can work with your local computer stores because they're always looking for old laptops and phones so they can grab certain parts that uh, when they need to repair one of those, they can they actually have those on hand. And then, of course, they have these local drop-offs usually once or twice a year for a lot of cities where you can drop off uh, your, your computers and then they get recycled properly. We had a, uh, we actually have uh, in one of our prison systems, we have an area where they're, they actually tear apart the computers and, and pull out the gold and pull out the uh, important parts and then uh, properly recycle it. And go ahead, um, uh, Jason. Best Buy, just so you know, in most states will limit you to three computers. I had to orchestrate an accidental mass hard drive casualty event uh, a couple weeks ago because uh, one of my clients is a CPA firm, and I offered to dispose of a single computer. And they said, oh, cool, can you get rid of the rest of them? Every computer for 30 years, I'm not kidding, was just there. And... Um, yeah, it took the better part of an afternoon. I will never leave um, a hard drive in, ever. Drill it out, always. Apple, I've yet to find a limit on. So there's your answer. Go ahead, Jeff. If you want to uh, get rid of them, there are, if you just find, uh, you know, secure shredding services, where and, and the better ones have a truck that will come to you. So if you have enough stuff... And you have to make sure the truck is capable, but they have trucks that also can shred hard drives. And it is, by the way, very cool. And, and if they're the better ones where it's secure, they, they literally have a camera and a monitor that shows you the actual shredding. So you know that your, I mean, you see your hard drive drop down and get shredded. And if you have enough stuff to warrant it, you know, I, I had one time finally my collection of old hard drives that didn't work but had stuff on them uh, built up enough uh, along with paper and stuff. I finally called the truck out. They they came to me right out on the street, dumped all the paper in, and then I was like, are you sure? Yeah, yeah, yeah. give me these hard drives. And they just dumped the hard drives right in and they're, they just, you know, come out a mangled mess. I Go ahead, Marty. Yeah, so uh, destroying the hard drive, you know, drilling through it is is the best way. And, and anything that needs to be secured on a computer is is generally on the hard drive, uh, whether it be an SSD drive, a spinning drive, uh, whatever. Make sure you're pulling all that memory out of the computer, and then the computer itself is just stupid, right? Um, th that said, there are there are programs that will securely overwrite all 
bits and data on the drive with with hash. Uh, and that secures and uh, scrambles any data that was previously on it because everything is being overwritten. But destroying the drive is the best process. Yeah. Uh, and as someone who's decommissioned a thousand drives on my own, um, I... I would highly recommend a shredder. <laughs> like I didn't even know the shredders existed for hard drives. Uh, there's one in Berkeley that's Berkeley shredding, and, and it just it's just the, the you think of your paper shredder, and then make each one of those little teeth about ten times wider, and they just kind of churn through everything. You know, it's 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 a pretty uh, it's pretty fun to watch. Um, and so I'm I'm in the process of taking a lot of paperwork over there to, to get rid of it. Um, I I'm, I'm a little far away from them to to have them to have them come to me, but I'm um, taking a whole van full of, of, uh, of old paperwork over and just having them. And you can sit there and watch it. Same thing. I, I would always go to one that you can watch. Like I wouldn't go to one that you're just doing a dumb drop. It's that's why, why shred it? If you're going to do a dumb drop, <laughs> like if you're going to, if you want to get rid of the data, take it to someone who's going to let you see it go through the system. Next question. Guy Cochran in Seattle's right back again with what traits are most valuable to you when choosing a team for production? Uh, I think that attentiveness, of being present, <laughs> I think is probably one of the most important things. So if some, if I feel like someone is paying attention to other things during the show, so if I feel like they're 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 um, they're not on, they're not responsive on comms, they're not uh, they're checking their email, they're checking texts, checking texts for other projects in front of me means that you won't be on the show and again. Like, like, just so you know, like, it's like not a, like that is a, you can do it, just go somewhere else, but you have to kind of clearly not be in your seat doing whatever. If I see it, I'm just like, well, that I just, I just write you off, you know, like, and so it doesn't matter how much you know or how good you are. Um, if I see you doing something like that. Now, some people that I know that are online all the time, but I know what they're doing is researching, like they're doing stuff and, you know, I can see it. They're on, you know, uh, um, whatever they call it now, gear, whatever, to do audio stuff and, and um, you know, and, and figure those things out. But if I see you surfing or, or uh, so being present is really important. Being on time is really important. Um, you know, being, uh, and then, and then of course, skill. But the skill is kind of table stakes of what you need to do. But for me to hire people over and over again, it's usually that they're on time, they're present, they are client appropriate. Um, you know, so just in how they talk, that means, no politics, no religion, no swearing, all the things we do here. <laughs> like that, that's kind of also table stakes for, for that. They don't, and then they don't, I don't, I don't hire a lot of yappers. So people who yap during the, during the um, production, I'll usually line you up as like, I don't need to have you work here. Like, you know, like, and, and so, um, you know, uh, yappers are, are problematic just because it's, a, it's, a, if it's a distraction from, from what we're doing. It, it's not that you can't talk at all, but, but that's usually a, a problem. Um, yeah, go ahead, Jason. I've only ever had to actually straight up get rid of somebody in the middle of a show um, once. For the most part, Alex pretty much nailed it. Um, the one thing that I would add to that is that they need to understand how to handle themselves around talent that they may or may not think is, you know, supremely cool. They can't lose it, you know, if a famous person walks in. Yeah, the... Uh I, I've, I've also only had to have someone I've removed twice from teams out of thousands of events. Um, and mo both of them, they were having uh, arguments with someone, you know, someone else on the team. That's usually, you know, like usually like getting into arguments with someone else on the team and having it not be just a theoretical trying to figure it out and very calm. Anything that, that rises above a very calm conversation about something and understanding who 
understanding where you are in the food chain. So it's usually someone, if, if two people are arguing and one person's a camera operator and the other person's the director, uh, the camera operator is going to get, <laughs> that's, that's who I got rid of. <laughs> like, you know, just, you know, the camera operator is not going to survive this one, you know, because they're lower on the food chain than the director. Um, and so, uh, so the, um, uh, so anyway, so I think that those are the kind of things you do want to watch. Being argumentative on, on site is a, is a pretty dangerous thing to do too. Um, next question. Next one comes to us from Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand. Peter says, Marshall Amps is being acquired by the Swedish firm Zound Industry. It's like sound, but with a Z. Any thoughts? Go ahead, Bill. Um, first of all, I, he has a note in here that he hasn't felt well. So, Peter, get well soon. We're hoping you come back very quickly. Uh, as to the actual question, I've seen it go both ways. I've seen a longtime, highly respected brand be acquired by a larger organization, and it do really well for them. They have more resources. They can do more, uh, hire better people. They can do a lot of things with that extra capital behind them. I've also seen it go the other way, where a classic brand has been kind of consumed by a huge thing and they don't really care about them. In fact, they may have been a competitive uh, acquisition to really suppress them and get them out of the competition pool. So I never really know whether it's going to be a good thing or not. It's it's coming back down to individual things. Um, in this case, it's a toss up. I hope it does really well for Marsha because they've been around a long time. and They made some really good products. Good morning. Yeah, this could really go either way. Um, looking at, at Zound Industries' website, what I see is uh, discussion, of, you know, on the Marshall brand is all consumer-oriented uh, information, like small uh, recreational speakers and, and earbuds and that kind of thing. I see very little information, maybe not even any, about uh, musical instruments and guitar amplifiers and the professional stuff. Um, it, it, it seems almost like they you know, want to split off the, the consumer-oriented product from the professional product and you know, if, if they're going to do something different with that. And we'll have to you know, wait and see what they do with it. Next question. Next one comes to us from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles. When renting Unity comms for a single show, if you have 12 users, should you rent the 15-user package or the 20-user package to be extra safe? I, I would get the 20. <laughs> so you, you, you always want to add, be able to add people. The reality is it's not very hard to upgrade. If you get the 15 and you need to go to 20 in the middle of the show, it's, it takes minutes if you know how to do it. So you know, increasing the number isn't that big of a deal. But I would probably go ahead and get the 20 so that I just didn't have to think about it. And I knew that I'd have some headroom in that area. You, comms are half the show. And having you want to be always leaning towards giving people comms as opposed to saying, oh, I don't have another seat for you. I don't have another whatever. Whatever you are saving by not putting that seat in, um, <laughs> it's not going to pay off. So so anyway, so I, I, I think that uh, you always want to have more people in. The key with Unity and with any other comm system is really making sure that um, that you are uh, properly grouping people into the PLs that make the most sense. So what when people start, they kind of put everybody on the, all the PLs, and that's usually not what you want to do. So you have the clients, you give them a PL, you give them oftentimes the clients will sit on their own PL, maybe have one other PL that they're sitting on. They won't, it'll get confusing for them if they have a lot of them. 
and you don't necessarily want them in the raw production PL. So you want to think about where, you know, where they're sitting and how they're doing it. We, it used to be we couldn't even make these decisions because, you know, it was like a two-channel and you just give them a two-channel <laughs> two analog comms. But now we have some controls over that. And so, you know, you want to think about, you know, how you set those up. I try to avoid anybody not being on comms because then they they sidestep the comms. They're talking to people all the time outside of the comms. They're walking over to them. They're, they're, you, know, you wanna slowly train them. And even if it's a small job, I try to get most of our clients on the comms, even if they're not gonna t say anything, because what I wanna do is get them to install the app and I want them to understand how the app works. And I want them to, and every every time we do an event, and you'll find that when we, first, we have a large client that you know now has lots of seats that we use for their events, and at first it was like, well, don't we, can we do, can we use Zoom or can we use a, uh, can we do all do a bridge and, and everything else? And the problem with the bridges is that's another thing you have to pay attention to if, you're, if you can't wire it into your comms. And it's also really inefficient, you know, and so it's really, really great to just put them on comms so that you can talk to them as needed or make an announcement or do whatever you need to do. But you keep them in there in, in a place that makes sense, you know, so they're not less necessarily interacting with everybody. But a lot of times we'll have our production comms, we'll have our own internal company comms, we'll have transmission comms, we'll have client comms, talent comms. And, you know, with Unity, we're kind of limited. You can put more, I know everyone always tells me you can put more pages in Unity, but you can only have six PLs, you know, per page, which is painfully lit lim limiting. Um, and, uh, and so that's the, you know, the, where you kind of, we try to limit most of our stuff to six PLs just because of the limitations inside of Unity for that thing. When you go to something like ClearCom, you can have 24 keys on your iPad and it just doesn't matter. Like they can be PLs or or um, or directs. So it's a lot smoother um, to do it that way. But but Unity, but if you're using Unity, that's, that's the way I would look at it. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael has one for Marty. Marty, you mentioned that an iPhone camera that is, quote, set up properly can produce very good images. How does one set it up properly, and do you use an app like Filmic Pro? Go ahead, Marty. Well, I'm, I'm an Android user, and uh, I'm using currently a, a Samsung a Galaxy S22 Plus Ultra, the biggest one. And I, I'm the kind of guy that, you know, when I get these things, I'll go through the menus thoroughly and look and see what capabilities they have and what I can adjust. And, you know, on a lot of these phones, you can adjust how the sensor works, whether it's working on a, uh, for exposure, whether it's working on a matrix of dots across the screen or center weighted or center spot. But there's also the ability to change from just standard video to what they call pro video, which opens up all of the adjustments that you would have in an SLR camera. You can adjust the ISO, you can adjust the uh, the f-stop, you can adjust the zoom, you can adjust uh, many different uh, parameters about how the camera and the sensor is picking up video. And I find when I'm going to a concert and trying to either shoot stills or shoot video, that I'll, I get much better results if I go into manual mode or pro video mode, uh, set the ISO, set the f-stop down, darken the, the area. And that way I don't get the center bloom off of the faces uh, that always happens when when I'm shooting in automated mode. So get much more control over the video and you can get better images. Good, Bill. 
I've had a lot of good success with Filmic Pro. Unfortunately, about, I guess it was six, seven months ago, I might be wrong about the timing, they got bought and uh, they moved from the traditional model they were on before to an all-subscription model. The, the thing I loved about the software is that it had better audio channel addressing and I could use it with my phone in a rig with my wireless mic system. And it was the only software that continuously was able to get that second channel audio onto my files through a wireless system. But with the subscription thing and the fact that I'm not sure that which direction the development's going, I've been moving away from it. So just take that as a grain of salt. Uh, on on the iPhone, I you know, of course, I, none of us were super excited about the fact that Filmic went to a different price model, but there's nothing else like it. <laughs> like, just, just so you know, if you're on the iPhone, there's I, I've tried, you know, when, when Filmic went to subscription, I went, well, I'm going to look at all these other apps and I open them all up and I play with them all. And they've really carved out a niche for themselves. Um, you know, where the a lot of the tools that are there are pretty specific and really well developed and they've been used by a lot of people. And I don't know anybody doing pro, and I know that sounds crazy to say pro level work on their iPhone, but there are a lot of people that do pro level work on their iPhone um, and uh, that, you know, do it for clients and so on and so forth, or they do it. And I don't know anybody using anything other than Filmic when they're doing records. Now there's Shoot, which is um, Michael Forrest, you know, Squares T TV makes, that's great for live. It's got telestrators. It's got all kinds of things built into it. That's a different, to me, that those two things belong on the same phone. You know, Shoot is doing one thing, but Filmic has a, a you know, a pedigree and a, and a history of interaction with professional filmmakers that, um, that the, the highest end people who are doing stuff with an iPhone and I, I haven't seen anybody get close to what they're doing, so I keep paying the subscription. <laughs> so anyway, next question. Next question comes from Tommy Shantz in St. Paul, Minnesota. My sound system has a severe white noise through the system. Sound check was fine. After the event, the only thing I could find was a dead battery in a C-1000 mic. Could that mess up the whole system, even if that channel was muted? Go ahead, Marty. No, not likely. I don't think so. So there are two things I would pay attention to. First is that sound check was fine. And then if you had noise during the show, that means that something changed. Uh, and the fact that it's white noise throughout the system and not particular to any input channel uh, means that there's something that's flooding the system. So white noise is often can often be associated with uh, stray RF Um that's getting in. So uh, like a, a wireless microphones or something like that um, can also be introduced through ground problems from guitar amplifiers, things like that. Um, so first look for something that changed between sound check and show something, somebody may have turned something on nearby and then uh uh, yeah, it's it's not an easy thing to track down, but you you've got to think through it, the problem logically, and uh, try and isolate what it could be. Jeffrey, real quick, I will go towards the uh, soundboard. I have the QSC Touch Mix, and the one big problem with that is the capacitors start to go, and you could have a perfect sound check, but then all of a sudden everything starts to uh, run, and then the uh, capacitors start to lose their uh, they lose their power. You end up pushing up the uh, gain on them, and then you can get a whole bunch of white noise coming through. I, like I said, I had this problem already, had to go on the board and actually change out those capacitors. So don't discount the board, but that's an extreme last measure. Next question. 
Douglas Carmichael is up next. I read the FCC in the U.S. has fined broadcasters for the use of the emergency alert system's tones. Fox is one example. How can the use of two audio tones or a combination of them be deemed illegal? Is there a similar problem in other parts of the world? Good morning. So what they're doing is they're using a combination of two specific tones that when played will trigger devices in the signal chain um, that will turn on the emergency alert system automatically. So very much like uh, um, touch tones on a telephone, every, every number is a combination of two tones that signals a digit, right, for, for dialing. So they're doing something very similar. Uh, there are every radio station, every television station have uh, equipment in their in their transmission chain that um, will turn on the emergency alert, uh, video screens and audio announcements, interrupt programming, and and they're triggered by these two tones that are sent out by the FCC. And so, yeah, <laughs> using them uh, in any other way could be problematic. Go, Jeff. And to be clear, the emergency alert system is, as, as Marty described, a very specific thing that is meant to send to notify people that there is a genuine emergency taking place of some sort. This was used in an ad, so they used that in an advertisement, having nothing to do with an actual emergency. That's where the problem is. It, they can use the tone if there's actually an emergency but not in an ad. It's like yelling fire, um, you know, in a crowded room. All right, we are jumping to our, our second hour. Uh, we're very excited to have Glenn Sanders here from Zaxcom. Hey, Glenn, how you doing? Can you hear us okay? Nope, can't hear you there. Okay, how about now? We can hear you just great now. Thank you. Cool. Hi. Hi, welcome to uh, Office Hours. Good to, good to see you here. Thank you, Lizzie. Great to be here. Um, so uh, tell us a little bit about, we'll, we'd like to get a little of the history. Like, how did this all get started? How did you decide to start Zaxcom? Where, where did it begin? Well, it all began when I worked in post-production, uh, television post-production. And I kind of knew I wanted to do my own thing. And I wanted to uh, make a product that would certainly sell and be uh, accepted and profitable. So I invented something called the time-based corrector control system, um, which went along with the line of work I was doing at the time. Now, now what did that change from what you had, what, what was in the industry before? In the industry, if you wanted to remote the settings of a time-based corrector, which basically is used to uh, set the video settings for playback of an analog video tape, it's, um, it's something that controls gain, setup, chroma level and U, as well as timing settings. And the problem was that when people would change videotapes on a recorder, they had to set up the tape every time and there was no way to memorize those settings. I mean, you could have 20 tapes and maybe three or four tape machines. So you were constantly changing tapes. And every time it was a process to go to the color bars on the tape and set the tape up. So what I did was I built a system that would allow remote control from an edit room of a remoted tape machine and time-based corrector and would memorize those settings. And it would allow you to take a multitude of edit rooms 
and control any number of tape machines that were wired to or routed to that room. And for that, I won one of the Emmys that are sitting behind me because that was a pretty big deal. So that then ended up being the starting point where I then made uh, digital audio mixers for television post-production. And then when Avid came in and I saw that basically that was going to go away, I decided that I wanted to make an audio recorder for film and television because I felt that the current recorders of the day, which were the analog Nagra and DAT machines, mm-hmm. uh, were not ideal by any means. And it was time. For they're the pretty big. They're, they're they're pretty large. You know, they, they were. They're uh, large. They're heavy. The audio quality was not great. Um, you know, I felt that we could bring so much more to it. Um, when we invented the Diva, which was the first multi-track production recorder, uh, we added metadata to the files. We came up with the file format uh, by adapting WAV files. Uh, we invented something called pre-record, which allowed 10 seconds of audio to be recorded before you press the record key um, with time code reference. Um, yeah, that I don't think a lot of people realize, but we invented that. And, um, you know, basically just converted the world from analog, basically analog tape-based recording to digital nonlinear recording. You know, just the fact that people didn't have to change reels every 20 minutes or rewind tapes, or if you check a tape, then you you might re-record over something if you don't shuttle it back to the end Mm -hmm. of where you were recording. I mean, all these problems were eliminated. And we also increased the audio quality from the best they had was 16-bit audio on a DAT, which wasn't great. And all of a sudden, you know, we're putting out a recorder with an extra 20 dB of dynamic range uh, with four tracks, which was the first Diva. Um, It was all pretty mind-blowing to the community. And and what did that... uh what did it take to design those? Like, so you're building something that no one's else built before. Did, was, how do you, how do you even build that pipeline? Cause you're coming from being, you were a field, you, you worked in this industry and then you have to start developing these things. What did it take to actually design and build the, the hardware? Well, I, I actually, I mean, I worked in the video part of the business mostly, right. um, but you know, I, I certainly saw the need for a nonlinear digital system And the first thing it took was we had to write our own file system because FAT16, which was the file system of the day, I mean, everyone said, oh, it's not going to work. You're going to lose audio. And they were right. It wasn't going to work because, you know, (laughs) if you had a problem in FAT16, you lose the file. You don't lose just a little bit of audio. So (laughs) we ended up making our own file system called the Mobile Audio Recording Format, or MARF for short, which is a terrible name, but okay. Um, But we did this, and we embedded the directory in the audio files. So even to this day, if you're recording audio, and let's say you lost power, um, something happened to the media, whatever it is, then you can automatically, when the machine powers up again, it sees the open file, automatically closes it, and you're ready to go, and you haven't lost any audio. Right. Where, you know, again, today, even, you know, with a regular file system, 
uh, you can lose the take. You can lose the whole media. Um, the MARF system made it all possible. Um, you know, also what we did is we made a very small, power-efficient, high-quality recorder. If I knew you were going to ask, I would have brought the original Diva up here. I, we still have one, <laughs> uh, one or two anyway. But, um, you know, it was it was tough to... Uh, it was tough to do. I mean, it took a, a year or two to design it and figure it out. And the biggest problem was the media, because what media are you going to use and how is post-production going to play it back? Right. What we had to do is we had to take the diva and write software for it to chase time code and act like a linear tape. So right. you could plug it into the telecine controller and get the audio back right. the other thing we had to do and, and and they were playing the audio back from your recorder right at, at they that were playing, yeah they were playing it back from our recorder but what we had to do besides having it play from the original disc is we needed a second media the diva and this is something we invented was the first field recorder to record on two medias at one time so we chose dvd ram because the format just became available uh, when we came up with the Diva, which was uh, 1997 or so. So we chose DVD-RAM because Panasonic had just come up with it. And actually, they're in Secaucus, New Jersey. We're in New Jersey. So I was able to get the head of the product line and say, hey, we have this uh, application for film and television. Can we get a drive? And they actually gave us a, a drive before they even put it out to the public. And we were able to integrated into the diva so dvd ram for many years became the standard for delivery of film and television audio and was that a portable storage device so that's something that you could record to and hand to someone or is it still something that was installed into the into the machine uh well the well the disc was a dvd so right you know, yeah the the drive itself was actually a computer-esque drive i mean basically you know, one of the drives that are like this big that goes yeah. Yeah, yeah. Your, your PC or Mac of the day, or actually not Mac, but PC of the day. Mm -hmm. So it was like an outboard DVD right. uh, recorder. And, uh, you know, luckily it was, you know, the drives and the media were robust enough to make that work. So, you know, putting all this together uh, allowed us to transition the industry from, you know, from the older medias to, file-based digital recording. Of course, after we pioneered it, it got easier because, you know, drives got bigger and then there was solid state media like, you know, SD and uh, compact flash. And, um, you know, it, it has, got has easier it, for everyone, but we, we were the, we were the pioneers of all of that. Has it, has it been amazing? I just have to ask, is it, has it been amazing to watch storage change so dramatically? I mean, for, for you, I mean, you, 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 cause you were really in the trenches dealing with this, from day one, uh, I'm always amazed. I have a, I have this key here. This little key has got a terabyte on it. <laughs> you know, it's, so it's you just know, an amazing, well, amazing progression. The first hard drives we bought for the Diva were 700 megabytes. Yeah. yeah. Not even one gig, you know? Yeah. I mean, and luckily we're only recording four tracks of audio, so you could easily get, uh, get all your audio for a day on it. But, you know, today that wouldn't work at all. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's amazing you know, how it's progressed. And, you know, we've had to, 
you know, keep up with all of that. And we have, and, uh, you know, that's cool, you know? So, so, so what came after the diva? How, where did you go from there? Well, basically after recording, I wanted to turn our attention to wireless microphones because, um, and looking around at what microphones were available, I mean, you had the problem. And what year was this when you, when you did that? Uh, this was around the year 2000. Right. So, you know, I decided I wanted to make a digital transmission wireless microphone, which of course, every, every manufacturer of the day said could not be done impossible. You can't do it. And I just, you know, as we usually do said, well, you know what, we're going to make it work somehow. So, you know, we set off to uh, design a digital transmission wireless microphone. Um, we had to figure it all out what, from scratch. What makes digital transmission so hard? Uh, well, you have to ask the question in terms of what made it hard in the, time. the year 2000. Exactly. Basically, power consumption of the ICs required the physical size of the transmitter that you could have um fitting enough data into the channel which is fcc limited to 200 kilohertz um it's you know i kind of look at it the problem like a balloon if you push on the balloon on one side it's going to bulge on the other right so you've got to figure out how to get all these parameters of rf bandwidth power consumption transmitter size battery size um, audio quality, if I didn't say that, you have to figure out how to get all these things to be just right. And, right. you know, while that was true 23 years ago, right. it is still very true today. You well, know, it's, it's our, even gotten harder in some ways because they took a bunch of our frequencies away, not that I'm bitter. Uh, well, that's not, I wouldn't say that's not what makes it hard. Okay. What makes it hard is that, you know, here's here's our our most popular transmitter mm -hmm. and i was going to talk about this later but yeah uh, what's hard is here you have something this is the size of a zippo lighter yeah i mean i'm looking for something to compare it to maybe uh my glasses i mean it's just absolutely tiny yeah and this runs for seven hours on a single charge right at full power of 50 milliwatts i mean you know that's that's the trick and you know, you can't, no one wants a big transmitter. No one yeah. wants a transmitter that doesn't run long enough. Right. And, you know, the problem today of trying to get, you know, all those parameters to be as tight as possible, size, battery life, transmit power, audio quality, that's the key. And I think that's where, you know, no one, no one has done what we have done even today. Any competitor can't do this. And well, and they're, and they're very durable. <laughs> like, you know, it's not oh, just absolutely. that they're like, I've, I've actually taped your transmitters onto his shoulder pads. <laughs> so, so, you know, like, and, 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 so, and okay. you know, for, for big games. And, and so and I, I, you know, your background. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's, um, like I say, it, it's tough and this, to top it off, it records internally, remote controllable, and has 48 volt phantom power. Right. So yeah, there's there's just nothing anyone makes that that can do what this does. Right. So you so you moved into digital production or digital transmission. Um, and where did where did it go from there? Well, we did that 
And, you know, just doing that didn't get us a lot of customers. Mm -hmm. We had to take a look at it and say, okay, what do we have to do to really change this industry? Because people tend to be happy with what they've purchased. Because if you've gone out and spent, you know, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars on a whole bunch of analog compounded wireless, and right. someone shows you a digital transmitter, you're not going to go out and and change yep. over immediately. You're going to take your time, see how it goes for other people. Right. Um, so what I decided to do was to take the transmitter and add some very special features. Uh, we added internal recording. Uh, with a memory card that is easily removable. We added remote control that we could access from a very, very long distance. And we added an internal time code generator with RF uh, transmission of it. So that all you have to do is literally turn the transmitter on and it jams its own code. So there's no jamming with cables. So putting all that together allowed us to come up with something that was just an undeniable advance in the art of wireless microphones. And of course, all of that with audio quality that is, you know, absolutely as close to a hard wire as you could possibly get because it's all digital transmission. Yeah. So that's where we, that's where we went and Mm -hmm. uh, you know, where we're going from here (laughs) You'll have to wait and see. <laughs> well, you and and the your latest release is the Nova. Is that right? Is that? Oh uh, well, our latest, yeah, our latest recorder is the Nova. I mean, Nova is mm-hmm. about three three years old at this point, right? And I mean, Nova is terrific. I mean, what Nova does that no one does is, you know, here you've got a recorder that's about four pounds, and the receivers fit into the recorder. So, right. And so usually for those listening, you, you have uh, you have your recorder and then you've got a bunch of receivers that are all in your bag. You've got a big recorder and then you've got a bunch of, um, you know, receivers that are all kind of lined up along on the outside of that. And then they're all feeding into that into that recorder. And in, in the in yours, that that is directly it's the receivers are actually in the recorder. Is that right? That is right. Yeah. The receivers in it. I mean, I could pull it out. And how many channels do those receivers pick up? Uh, this receiver receives four separate transmitters, so you can actually receive eight channels of wireless uh, within the recorder. Right. So literally this or maybe this and an IFB transmitter um, is all you need in your sound bag. And in fact, this does output IFB audio on 2.4 gigahertz mm-hmm. uh, to one of our receivers. So let me just put the, the gear down here. It's a little unwieldy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with us, the thing is, you know, you've got a sound bag that weighs roughly six pounds. Right. That is half the size, uh, less than half the weight of, you know, other typical bags. And power consumption wise draws half to a third the power. So, you know, if you look at competitive systems, uh, you know, you can walk around with a 16 to 20 pound sound bag. And that doesn't do what our uh, six-pound sound bag does in terms of performance and right. integration and what have you. So, um, you know, I, I think we're we're leading in, in the sound bag area when it comes to the ergonomics and uh, usability. And 
where are you going next? Can you tell? Give us any hints. Uh, well, NAB is only about a week away, so <laughs> you know you'll have to wait and see. Do, do you have some new stuff for NAB? We do have new stuff for NAB. Great, yeah. great. Well, we'll we'll stop by. We're we're covering NAB okay. uh, in in detail. <laughs> so we'll we'll got... be happy to show you uh, at that time uh, the the big new thing for the show. So the only thing I can tell you is there's a big new thing. Excellent, excellent. Well, that's what we we'll make sure to put you on the on the list of must uh, must visit uh, if if you're if you're releasing something new. Now, uh, do you um, what do you where do you see this industry going? Like, not so much with your products, but when you're looking at out into the into the future, what do you think are the key challenges and opportunities that are that are out there? Well, you know, I think going forward, there's always going to be the ability to uh make smaller gear lighter gear lower mm -hmm. power gear i i think going forward a lot of the challenges in terms of deliveries uh that's where things are at i think you know if you can get audio files to someone on you know a physical piece of media that's great but of course everyone wants to just hit the stop button and have the files end up on a server somewhere that anyone mm -hmm. in the world can see it uh, so I would say it's the integration with, you know, Wi-Fi and the Internet and, you know, the world around us that, you know, we we have to realize that, you know, a sound mixer is no longer, quote unquote, off the grid. Um, you know, when you're on set, even when you're working in a sound bag, if you're working for a TV network or whatever, I mean, whether it's the evening news or you know, a 60 minutes kind of show, uh, people want to hear the audio files and see the picture uh, literally the moment it's done. I mean, even to the point where if everyone is still, you know, on set, uh, sitting in their chairs, that someone can just call in and say, uh, hey, you know, you didn't, you didn't ask them this question, ask them this question while yeah. they're still there. So, yeah, I would say, you know, it's it's so much about what we're doing right now, which is communication. Um, Are you doing any uh, of the camera to cloud um, integrations right now? Uh, not at the moment. I would certainly, uh, I would certainly say to you, future plans are yeah. are happening. So I, I don't want to talk too much about what we're. Yeah, absolutely. No, we, we've because we've been experimenting with it. And it, it is kind of revolutionary when you're there and you're sitting there and someone can be downloading something in our case in frame IO, they're sitting there looking at something that we shot, like, we close the we, we, we close the camera. And they, they they have it seconds later, and they're sitting there talking to us about, hey, can we take one more take with a little closer to the hands? Or can we do a little bit of this? And it's, it's, it's both a little bit nerve wracking, because you have a producer or a director or editor asking you things while you're trying to shoot. But at the same time, you've got the whole set there. You've got all the people there. You don't have to do another buildup, and you, and they're getting exactly what they want. So it's a really interesting, interesting puzzle. So sure. for our for our online audience, um, we're going to get to your questions here in a second. So if you've got questions uh, for Glenn, uh, make sure to um, go ahead and throw those into Makana, uh, and we're going to go ahead and throw it to a couple of our panelists for questions before we get to the online audience. Go ahead, Marty. Hey, Glenn. Uh, welcome to Office Hours. Um, so in the nine in the 1990s, I was doing electronic news gathering for the networks in Washington, D.C., right? So we're all over town doing live shots and interviews and stuff. And as the audio guy, I had this, you know, 
mixer bag on my shoulder and I had a wiring harness that went from my mixer to the camera that carried two channels of audio to the camera and then audio coming back from the camera. And then when we're doing live shots, we had to uh, give the on-camera talent and IFB and be able to feed them IFB. And Zaxcom did had a couple of innovations in wireless that completely revolutionized that. Can you talk about what you did? Sure. Uh, basically, what we did is we invented the two-channel digital audio link where you're able to put the transmitter, which I have right here, coincidentally. You're able to put this transmitter in your sound bag and you're able to send a digital two-channel link to the camera. And this also has our Zaxnet output at 2.4 gigahertz that works with our IFB receivers. So we basically transformed the that market from companded FM wireless to a two-channel, you know, again, like a hardwire uh, kind of transmission uh, to the camera. So that worked. That worked out really well. Um, you know, we still sell quite a few of those today. Um, you know, I mean, we've been in IFB for a long time. Our first IFB was receiving our Zaxnet signal, which I, I should probably elaborate on for a moment. Uh, our recorders transmit this signal we call Zaxnet. And Zaxnet was or is a system where on one RF transmission, we put time code, wireless remote control, and IFB audio. So you get all of this functionality coming out of the recorder, you know, without a separate transmitter, uh, you know, from the sound bag. So it, it just gave a functionality uh, to the system that was just amazing. In fact, with Zaxnet, you know, when you control the gain of the transmitter, you're doing it through the recorder. So you're able to actually put it up on a knob on the recorder, actually hit one button, and tweak the transmitter's gain right from the recorder in the bag. And even today, nobody does that. You know, so that that's kind of along the lines of what we were were doing back when we uh we came up with that system. And so the 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 person on camera actually needs just one belt pack for both microphone transmission and IFB receive. We did have a pack like that. We're not offering it that at this time, uh, but back in the day, yes, we did. Uh, today, it would you would have your wireless microphone and you would have your your IFB pack. And by the way, for those listening who don't do a lot of this, being able to change the gain at the at the receiver level is or at the transmitter level is a big deal because we would get into gain stage issues, you know, where it's not high enough or it's too high. And then we're, you know, and then we're trying to correct for it on our on the receiving end. And it just never it was never as good as being able to change well, what the transmitter is doing. Go ahead. What, what I'd like to say about that is we just ran uh, tests against systems that don't control the gain. And we, you know, set up a very scientific test with an audio generator and audio precision. And what we found was being able to control the gain of the transmitter to the point where, you know, you've got a proper level coming out of the transmitter versus not controlling transmitter gain and trying to correct for it down 
stage or down the line, uh, we achieved five to six dB lower noise floor yep. uh, by changing the gain at the transmitter. It's just, it's an essential thing. I mean, you've got to be able to properly match the preamp to the A to D in the transmitter. Otherwise, you're leaving dynamic range on the table. It is just that simple. There's no, there's no system that can achieve the same audio quality as a system that allows you to control the mic gain at the transmitter. Yeah, hundred percent. I go, ahead, Jeff. Yeah. First of all, I'll I'll reiterate the the thanks and appreciation for you being here and joining us. Um, Field recording is is not in my wheelhouse. So, but but some of the benefits uh, seem obvious with that recorder, the Nova, um, especially having the re- the receivers built in. I assume you can also use external receivers and and feed them them in. Is that right? And then I guess my question is, what are there considerations when deciding, you know, do I just, aside from if you need more, but in other words, is the performance of the internal ones the same or the distance as an external? Or so there are considerations when deciding, do you just use the internals versus external receivers? Right. There's no limitation on being able to uh, connect external receivers. They can be Zaxcom, they can be receivers from other manufacturers. You know, the recorder has a number of analog inputs and AES inputs. So the eight internal receivers are certainly enough for literally any kind of bag job that you would do. Uh, But we do have people that are putting Novas on carts, hooking them to our external mixing consoles. So if you wanted to, let's say, go up to 16 channels of receiver, we offer this guy. Uh, This is called an RX-8. And an RX-8 actually has two slots, which are currently empty, but it has two slots. So you can plug in the same receiver that plugs into the Nova. So what you're doing is you're getting a lot of value out of your system because you've got these four-channel modules. And if they're plugged into the Nova, fine, they can plug into the RX-8. We've got a little uh, standalone uh, adapter that allows you to use it as a four-channel receiver. And we've got uh, something called the RX-12 that actually would handle six modules for 24 channels of audio. So, you know, I think the way we look at it is when someone buys our wireless, um, you know, what we want to do is we want to provide the maximum value that we can. So by having this flexibility of the modules and putting them where you need them, or maybe even where you want to rent them out separately, um, you know, it's something that every sound mixer can get the best return for their investment in a system that is modular flexible. And frankly, um, audio or RF transmission and reliability is not sacrificed by having the module in one place or another. I mean, if it's in the Nova with whip antennas, you're going to get, uh, you know, very, very good range and performance. Of course, conditions uh, <laughs> have to be observed. I mean, if you're in the middle of Times Square, it's going to be less than if you're in the middle of a cornfield in Iowa. But, you know, when you take it and put it into something like the RX-8, and maybe you're on a sound cart with log periodic antennas uh, that are raised up, eight or 10 feet in the air, 
you know, you're going to double or triple the range you might have from a sound bag with whips. So everything is um, is dependent upon conditions, but there's no there's no penalty for using the receiver in one place or another. It's um, always going to give you very, very good uh, results. I mean, people get tripped up sometimes, like some for a while, people were using these power distribution boxes and sound bags that had switching power supplies to make USB power. And those were just radiating stray RF all over the place. And uh, huh. when that happens, you know, they would say, hey, why is my range only like 50 feet or 30 feet? It's like, well, because you've raised the noise floor by putting interfering, interfering devices uh, you and know, what were those? What were the USB devices that were doing this? Uh, they were power distribution boxes that some of the the companies that are making them uh, got clever about and said, "Hey, you know, we're going to put a five volt uh, USB jack in there so you can power your USB stuff." Right. And they put a switching power supply in to go from twelve volts to five volts. Right, and they didn't do any kind of RF protection and. Hmm. You know, you got a big square wave generator in there for those that understand what the, all that's about. And, uh, you know, square waves just emanate harmonics and stray RF all over the place. So, right. you know, again, conditions are everything when it comes to RF, you know, yeah. just everything. Good, Marty. Yeah. So just for those who don't do a lot of field recording, um, have to remember that you're you're personally mobile and you're moving around so everything you carry every piece of equipment has to be battery powered and so if you have six different devices in your sound bag that you're carrying across your chest each one of those could have its own battery or you can have a central battery a large battery that um and a distribution system that can then power all devices so you just have one battery to change and then that distribution device as glenn was saying is critical not only for the operation but for the noise floor and uh for protection but um glenn you mentioned a couple of things about antennas that i think are often overlooked in the signal chain as being very important devices can you can you talk to us a little bit about your antennas and, and why you're doing what you're doing with them. Sure. I mean, primarily, we we don't offer a lot of antennas. I mean, when it comes to things in a sound bag, um, you know, there's not a lot of choices because basically it's a whip antenna uh, or almost nothing. I mean, there are a few other solutions um, that are what are called bow tie antennas in the industry and people giving them fancy names. Uh, they're basically just wideband dipoles. Um, a whip antenna is effectively going to be the same kind of uh, the same kind of thing as a dipole. A dipole being just you know two wires like this, um, but actually you stand them up. Um, sorry for the bad graphics, um, but in, in any case, uh, so really there, in my book there there's two there's two options there's whip antennas uh or analogs of that whether they be dipoles or bow ties uh but for the most part if you if you want the best results you use a log periodic antenna uh the reason we use log periodics is because they'll give us a forward gain 
of about 9 dB, 8 to 9 dB. And we make those. I didn't. I don't have one handy to show, but I think we all pretty much know what a, a shark fin looks like. Uh, so with its 9 dB of forward gain, that doubles the distance, literally doubles the distance. Uh, so that's a great thing. But what it does that is also an extreme benefit is it minimizes interference from the directions that you're not pointed. So for instance, if you were to uh, have an interferer behind you or to the sides of you, you might get 9 to 18 dB of attenuation of that interfering signal. Well, if you can do that, if you've got 9 dB of gain and 9 dB of attenuation, there you go. There's, there's, uh, thank you, Marty. <laughs> there's a screenshot there. Um, if you have that, you've got 18 dB, 18 dB better uh, signal to noise on the RF. That's huge. You know, I, I mean, I do understand you can't do that, you know, walking around with a sound bag. But then again, with a sound bag, you're not typically, uh, you know, 100 feet from the action, you're you're probably 10, 20 feet away from what's going on. You don't need anything like that, typically. But when it comes to, you know, being able to use something like a shark fin antenna, if you can, you always should. It's, it's that important and so much more important than a lot of other of the quote unquote uh, uh, options that you have. That's great. Now we're going to go ahead and open it to our to our uh, our producers, our online viewers. So let's go ahead to the first question. Our first one comes from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana, and Roscoe asks, "What's the runtime on your LA5 transmitter uh, to using two ProCell AA batteries?" And he wonders why did you choose to use AA batteries to power your units? Okay, uh, basically on that transmitter, I believe with. Um, well, ProCells are alkaline batteries, I believe. Um, we don't generally recommend them. I think the I think you get about five hours out of that. Uh, what we recommend on the LA5 is uh, nickel metal hydride rechargeables. And the reason that we went with that is because that's what the industry demands. Everyone wants to know if, you know, if in an emergency, you can just go to the you know, supermarket or whatever, and get batteries and put them in and they're going to work. Um, so there's still, there's still a big need for that. I mean, when it comes to our transmitters, we actually have a few alternatives. Um, but uh, just, just to first finish off the question. So yeah, about eight hours on, on those rechargeable batteries, which I think is quite good. And frankly, I'm very proud that Number one, we're not generating the waste, which the world needs to generate less less waste um, on that. And uh, the cost to run it is, you know, virtually zero. Because if you're going to have rechargeable batteries, uh, maybe it's going to cost you ten cents every time you run it. So that's all good. Uh, on our smallest transmitter, just talking about batteries, we use the. Uh, the NP50 battery, and this will run this transmitter for seven hours, full time, full power uh, at 50 milliwatts, which is actually kind of a ridiculous number. Again, comparatively, it's just it's just out of the ballpark in terms of uh, 
where all the other uh, kind of uh, transmitters from our competitors are. The other thing that's interesting about batteries and battery life is this generates no heat because it's so power efficient. You know, you could have it in someone's pocket all day long and it is just not going to get hot. And that's a big consideration when it comes to transmitters. I mean, you just can't put hot transmitters on people. They won't accept it. And then yeah, we no. have, oh, go ahead. and lastly, I don't know if it has a battery in it. Let's see. No, no battery. Uh, but <laughs> I wasn't prepared for that question, but this runs off of a little Motorola battery uh, that powers their walkie talkies. And, uh, you know, it, it also, you know, double A's are, are great in terms of being able to get them, but they're not great in terms of building a small transmitter because you really need two batteries to get any kind of life out of a, a transmitter. So, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Here's the, <laughs> there, there's the Motorola battery right there. Didn't realize I had one on my desk. That's great. Um, so, you know, these kind of batteries are lithium, uh, rechargeable. And of course, AA batteries, you know, come in all, all flavors. But the one thing I'll mention about AA's is, I don't know if anyone's noticed, but the cost of them for lithium has gone crazy. Uh, we just bought a couple, couple batteries the other day. And, you know, for literally AAA uh, lithium batteries, they're just about $5 each. Wow. Which, you know, makes, you know, and especially if you have a transmitter that uses them, you know, having to, you know, because they're small, they don't have much energy, you know, going through three or four sets a day is just a kind of a showstopper. So anyway, yeah. that's kind of our battery thing. That's great. Oh, that's great. I'll, I'll just add that this, sorry to be too much of a rolling advertisement here. No, no, it's great. This runs for 16 hours on this battery at full that's power. Great. Yeah. So you know, pretty nice. A day, <laughs> like a, a day. You know, that's the the key is getting to a day. Uh, oh, you know, yeah, like, yeah. No, you wouldn't have to change. It's yeah. amazing. That's fantastic. Uh, and does it give you feedback on exactly where it is in the battery? I mean, is it is it pretty accurate as far as that feedback goes? Yes. Uh, there's telemetry that'll tell you the battery, um, the battery level, um, and you can read that right out on the recorder. It shows up. Uh, it shows up in our receiver page. That's great. And actually, when the battery goes low in the transmitter, there's a ring of LEDs. I don't have it lit up here, but there's a ring of LEDs around the knobs. And when the battery on the transmitter goes low, the knob begins to flash. Oh, that's great. So you know, <laughs> like, okay, you have to do something. Right. No, that's so, great. Yeah. No one that's likes a dead battery. No one like it is a range uh, range anxiety is is a huge thing like batteries in my you know especially in live we're just worried about we're worried about batteries all the time like I just you know think about them all the time you know is, yeah. is, is what's what's charged what isn't what you know where are we on on our on our our scale yeah. so. you know you, you just brought up something but you said it in, in a, a term that isn't quite the term I recognize it as yeah you talked about range anxiety yeah. Um, and I'd like to speak for a moment if I can. I'll try yeah. to keep it brief. Absolutely, no. Um, yeah, please, please do. You know, when it comes to transmission range, uh, you know, that's something that we, you know, we really struggled with when we invented digital wireless uh, because certainly we had to absolutely get range that was not only comparable to analog, but, you know, would certainly be more than good enough for any production situation. 
And there's one thing that we did that I think just works so well today, especially in terms of what's in the marketplace, is we made sure that our wireless not only had great range, but had the ability to quickly achieve lock on the transmitter. Right. Meaning that the moment you switch a transmitter on, uh, we didn't want the receiver to have to take time to figure out what that signal was and to log onto it. So literally our lock time is literally a millisecond. And the thing that I find interesting is, you know, there's a lot of talk in the industry about range anxiety. And, you know, when we ran some tests uh, recently, what we found was our system, you know, in terms of non-line of sight, because everyone, everyone that uses a wireless understands that often you can't have a clear path between the receiver and the transmitter. So what you've got is multi-path. And our system handles multi-path situations uh, incredibly well, where if the signal were to have a problem, it's going to be able to stay locked longer than anything else in the marketplace and if it, for some reason, takes an RF hit, it literally would be a millisecond or two and would be covered by what's called our dropout compensator. So I just want to say that, you know, you asked before what made Diva uh, something that, you know, we could put out and change the world. Uh, our modulations and their ability to maintain lock of the signal, um, you know, that's important. Because when someone says, we've got the best range or what have you, that's fine. But do you have the best signal reliability in terms of being able to work within a fixed area and with any kind of multipath or something that's going to interfere with the signal in terms of, you know, the signal getting from point A to point B, right. that's where we really, really excel. So uh, signal integrity I'm not talking about range. I'm talking about integrity is right. something that I think we really excel at and people yeah. need to be aware. And I know for us, we don't pay attention to anybody's numbers. We, we, get, the, we get the transmitters and we start walking around <laughs> we, we, and, we, and we try to put them through as many stress tests as possible, you know, and, okay. and just, you know, we want to go, we want to see how many walls can it go through? How much steel can it go through? How much can, you know, like all of those things and then distance as well. But, but you know, published numbers don't mean anything to to, to us. Uh, I I think you're right on the money, Alex. Yeah. Um, next question. Mickey Makachor in Manila in the Philippines is up next with, can you talk about the development process of coming from Rado Stafanov's Revolutionary One unit to what is now the Nova? Okay. Well, what Rado called his one unit was a nomad that he repackaged. Um, so he took our stock recorder called the Nomad, which uh, is out of production now. And he was able to basically take the case. I mean, I'm not 100% familiar with everything he did, but he was able to incorporate our QRX receivers, uh, which are these receivers here, which are two channel, two transmitter standalone receivers, and basically incorporate that into the Nomad in something that was, I believe, slightly bigger than the the original Nomad itself. So, you know, certainly, you know, Rado's one unit 
was a bit inspirational. And we said, you know, okay, this makes sense. And, you know, Rado was always saying, you know, he had some back injury or something at one point and didn't want to carry around a heavy sound bag. So he did everything he could do to get that bag to be as light as possible. And I just said to him, you know what, I'm going to, we're going to make a new recorder. I'll put the receivers inside. I'll put the IFB inside. I will make it as low power as possible. And what we ended up with was a four, you know, the Nova is a four pound recorder, including the receivers. Uh, And, you know, this is unheard of, you know, just for comparison, you know, if you look at the Nova in a sound bag, it's about six pounds. If you look at the equivalent competitive bag, it's basically 16 to 25 pounds, depending upon how you outfit it. Um, So, you know, Rado was certainly inspirational in terms of looking at what he wanted. And, uh, you know, I, I I don't think anyone is going to tell you that a lighter sound bag is a better idea, you know, or, you know, not tell you that. I mean, obviously, if it could weigh two pounds, we would like that. Uh, But having a smaller bag, a lighter bag, a lower power bag, these are all common sense things. And uh, Rado was just an illustration of how uh, happy someone could be that achieved that. Next question. Douglas Carmichael up next with, do you supply an SDK software development kit or extensions to allow MARF data to be read by a desktop operating system? We have a program called Zax Convert. And Zax Convert reads MARF and it will take in the MARF and it will generate WAV files and it will also generate MP3s. Uh, So there's no software developer kit needed. Uh, We did recently uh, supply uh, code to, um, uh, I'm drawing a blank on it. Uh, One of the, uh, they're gonna kill me too. (laughs) It's an Italian company. that does file conversion in the cloud and you could upload your MARF to them and they will do it and send it off to a um, transcription house or, or what have you. So uh, I want to say Ivanica. <laughs> you know, I, I, and I, and I feel bad because I, I also know what you're talking about. I can't think of, yeah. think of the and name right now. We've nice. actually talked about it in the past. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe someone will Google it real quick. And uh, cause Maybe I like the cloud. Yeah, yeah, Viviana. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Thank you. Um, They're great people, and I I know their product is well-received, and we're happy to do that. But no, there's no software developer kit. If someone wants to incorporate uh, MARF conversion into something they have, they can contact us directly, as uh, they did at Viviana. And, uh, you know, if we can help them out, uh, we would like to do that. We certainly have... uh, you know, we want to make sure MARF is compatible with everything that it can be. Uh, but, you know, again, as far as the users go, Zach's Convert will handle all their needs. Next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. What's the difference between 32-bit float audio recording and never clip recording? Okay. Um, never clip is actually something that we invented and patented, which uses two A to D converters to maximize dynamic range. And 
I mean, that's that's the short answer. So it's not actually a um, it's not actually actually comparable to 32 bit recording because it generates a high dynamic range 24 bit fixed point um, file that is just a greater dynamic range that you would have without the NeverClip dual A to D converter system. Once you generate that data, uh, you can then take that 24 bit. And if you want to convert it to 32 bit flow, you can do that. Um, I have to be real honest that I'm not, I'm not a big uh, proponent of 32 bit float audio in audio acquisition. I think, 32-bit audio is sort of uh, advertising fluff when it comes to the uh, the use of uh, the use of it in recording, because a 24-bit fixed-point audio uh, file has 144 dB dynamic range. We can't generate that much. I mean, our maximum dynamic range is 136, so we fit into the audio file, everything we need to fit. And in fact, we have something called ISO attenuation that actually will uh, give you extra dynamic range in the fixed point file uh, by basically taking the noise bits that are at the bottom and shifting the audio down to use those bits effectively. So when it comes to acquisition, there is zero reason to use 32-bit floating point for acquisition. Uh, in fact, it certainly it certainly takes up more data space uh, than a 24-bit fixed point file with zero benefit. Of course, in post-production, absolutely bring that fixed point file into your post system, and you're going to be tweaking that all over the place and generate a 32-bit file. But don't force 32-bit recording on people. It, it There's just no benefit to it. Um, and you know what? If everything started that way and there was compatibility with all the systems, maybe. But I don't need to create problems for people. Next question. Uh, next one comes from Mickey Makachor, who also, by the way, fed me that Viviana answer. Uh, he, Mickey in the Philippines says, don't mean to be a Dante diva, but when will the diva have Dante natively? Would MRX modules with Dante instead of RF be a possibility? We, okay. So there won't be any, Don, well, I mean, there's no Dante for the current Divas, certainly. Uh, we are we are Dante fluent. There is Dante in the RX-8 receiver. Uh, any new receiver, multi-track receiver will that we come out with will have Dante and any uh, higher track mount track count recorders we come out with if we come out with them I'm not saying we will i'm not saying we won't <laughs> people try to read stuff into that um it'll all have dante going forward it, it's you know it's something that is you know definitely appropriate and uh we're we're dante believers it, it, it took i think it takes a long time it's what i find interesting is that you know coming from an event you know, a company we've done working on a lot of events. Dante has been the thing that we use for a decade. You know, we don't think about anything else, but yeah. it is something in the broadcast area that's that's grown much slower. You know, in 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 that process, we're still running into people with Maddie. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's it's true. I 
you know, we were slow to get into it um, because I didn't see the need to have Dante connect, you know, the recorder on the cart to the receivers to save a couple of wires. Uh, because also Dante, you know, I mean, Dante certainly has to be set up. It's um, it's a great system, but it doesn't beat the reliability of AES on a wire that you switch on the unit and it's there. Uh, but if you're trying to get a lot of channels over a great distance, you can't beat it. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Next question. Stefan Fischer out of Wurzburg, Germany is up next. What made you stop building the all-in-one body pack with IFB and microphone signal in one unit? It seems to be so valuable for so many cases. Uh, that's a good question. Um, that unit, I like that unit. It was a little big, um, but the battery went obsolete on us. And I really felt that we wanted to... Uh, concentrate on separate IFB and transmitters to be a little bit more flexible, you know, and we might get back to that. You know, it wasn't a tremendous market. Um, so it, the problem that we have today is we have so many things, so many products in development that, you know, are much more lucrative in terms of the number we would sell um, that it would be tough for us to get back to that. And, you know, Look, that that product was one of my favorites because I thought it was pretty cool and no one else ever did it and no one has at this point. Um, but I'm I'm fond of it and I won't rule it out going forward. I have to say we use the uh, I think sure has a you know, it's not the same. It's not something we would use in a, at a, the same production level. But in the corporate world, they have, you know, they're they have a version that has the headphone and, you know, both both sides, IFB as well as as uh, Mike. And it's it is uh it's really addicting and you just wish that you saw it in more places. I, I, I definitely would use it a lot because it's yeah. just for us complexity. It re really reduces complexity for our hosts. Yeah. Let me just say that I'm, I'm not aware of it because it's not in our market and I, I right. honestly don't, don't keep track of, uh, yeah, no, no, absolutely. I'm just saying that we 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 would use it a lot more. It's on the deck, to, you know, so it's not really a, a same the same level oh, okay. of of it's transmission. Like an intercom thingy. It, it, you know, it's it's pretty good audio for again for corporate stuff and everything else okay. and people doing presentations, but but not sure. necessarily on what we would do here. But the the fact we use them for comms, like <laughs> we give them we give them to some folks because it's really low profile. We use hand up something. Sure. We can, Talk to our producers. It's really good. Okay. Um, next next question. It comes from Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida. And he says, I just want to applaud Glenn's background. And for those of you listening only, he's got these three really lovely golden statues that are very familiar over his left shoulder. Uh, it's a great example of a picture is worth a thousand words. What, what do you got back there? Uh, we have three Emmys. Uh, one for TBC Control. One for Diva one for digital recording wireless, and we've got a SciTech award from the Motion Picture Academy for Diva. That's great, fantastic. Uh, Glenn, thank you so much for, for uh, spending an hour with us. We really appreciate it. It's been really I, informative for us. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to do this and certainly uh, you know, would, would love to do it again if uh, the opportunity arises. Well, we're we're definitely going to see you at NAB. We've got, I think, about fifty people working on coverage for for NAB. So uh, we'll definitely come and hang out with okay. you uh, there. Before we go, just very one very quick thing. I know I know you must have experience with this, but this is our uh, our sports transmitter, the one that's flexible. Oh yeah, that's amazing. And, oh uh, nice. 
yeah, that's something we do for uh, professional sports teams like the NFL and and others. And, uh, you know, just a cool thing. And it records and does all the good things we do. So just, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to have a transmitter that you can bend <laughs> and, and super useful. Uh, you know, we did not invent that, but we right. certainly uh, were asked to do it. So we did. That's great. That's fantastic. Um, yeah. So we'll see you. We'll see you uh, in about a week and a half. Uh, we'll, we'll stop by the booth and see what, see what you have that's new and big uh, at, at NAB. We're really looking forward to that. So thanks That'd so be much. Great. I, had, I had a great time today. Thank you very much. Yeah, really, really our pleasure. We really, it was great to have you here. Uh, and thanks to our producers on the on the uh, watching and asking all these great questions, uh, keeping the conversation moving forward, both in the first hour and second hour. Thanks to the panelists. Can't do this without you. And thanks to the incredible team, the small village that li that lights up all over the world to produce this show on a daily basis. We really appreciate your contribution. Uh, the Tlaloc Traversal, we traveled 84,000 miles, uh, 136 thousand kilometers um and that's more than 671 million bananas for scale <laughs> all right let's go ahead and jump into after hours all right this is where we whisper because we don't want to distract anyone from the, the thing but i that transmitter is amazing i know can't wait to see what's new, new technically thing. you can of course bend Not the same as having a power forward slam into it during a game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's uh, guards, by the way. Offensive guards. They're the ones that use the mics, just in case you're wondering. Everything Ben's wants. Yeah, exactly. All right, you can see.